Well, as you no doubt know, the body of Peter's first epistle concludes with verse 11 of chapter 5. And we looked at verses 10 and 11 uh, last Lord's Day. And we are now coming to the short postscript that is attached to Peter's first epistle, found in verses 12 through 14. And here we read, By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, in this postscript, we find a number of things. We find a purpose statement for this letter, which is very helpful to summarize uh, what Peter has written and why he has written it. We find a commendation by Peter for the courier who delivered this epistle to the churches that are named in the opening verses. We find greetings from some of the Christians who are with Peter as he writes, and a final benediction. But this postlude raises some very interesting questions, at least in my mind. For example, how many individuals are named here? Are there two? Are there three? Are there more? It's clear that he names Silvanus and Mark. But who is she who is in Babylon? We'll have to explore that. And where is Peter writing from? Is he writing from Babylon? Is he writing from Rome? Is he writing, as some have thought, from Egypt, a little military outpost in Egypt with the name of Babylon? Or is he writing from somewhere else? And what is this kiss of love that Peter tells the members of the church to greet one another with? And so there are a number of interesting questions in these three verses that constitute the postlude. Today, actually, we're just going to take up verse 12 and leave verses 13 and 14, Lord willing, until next week. But from verse 12, we can extract a number of important things, I think. And I've entitled my sermon today, Three Ingredients for Healthier Christianity. And we find those ingredients all in verse 12, which I now read again. Peter says, By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. And the three ingredients of healthier Christianity that we're going to examine today are, number one, faithful workers, number two, sound doctrine, and number three, unwavering commitment. First of all, faithful workers. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you. By Silvanus. Who was Silvanus? How did he help Peter? And how does Peter commend him? Silvanus is undoubtedly the same man as Silas that we know as Paul's missionary partner on his second missionary journey. We read about him earlier in Acts chapter 15. And that is where he is introduced into the sacred record in Acts 15 verse 22 where he is identified along with Judas as one of the leading men among the brethren. We also learn later in this passage that he is a prophet, 
according to Acts 15.32, which means that he was a preacher and also means that he received special revelation from God to deliver to the people of God. And in chapter 16 of Acts, we find out that he, along with Paul, was a Roman citizen, very helpful to him in his missionary work. Silas, as you know, became Paul's partner on his second missionary journey, replacing Barnabas, who wanted to take John Mark with them, but Paul did not want to because Mark had defected from the first journey, and Paul did not therefore consider him to be reliable. And the Bible tells us that the contention between them was so sharp that Barnabas took John Mark and sailed to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and returned to the churches that they had planted on their first missionary journey in the regions of Galatia, Derby, Lystra, Antioch, Pisidia, and so forth. This man is called Silas in the book of Acts every time that he's referred to, which is actually 12 times in chapters 15 through 18. And Silas is the Greek form of his name. He is consistently called Silvanus in the epistles where he's referred to. Paul refers to him as such in 2 Corinthians and also in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And of course, Peter refers to him here in 1 Peter. And Silvanus is the Latin form of his name. It's interesting that Paul mentions him in epistles that go to the churches that Silas was instrumental in helping to found along with Paul. And that would be Thessalonica and Corinth, along with Berea and uh, Philippi. He's not mentioned in that, in that epistle. But Silas, or Silvanus, two forms of the same uh, name, very much as we have different forms of the same name in, in English today, as I don't need to explain to you. So the question is, how did Silas, or Silvanus, help Peter? It's interesting to find him now associated with Peter, as formerly he was associated with Paul. But again, the question is raised exactly what did he do for Peter? Peter says, by Silvanus, I have written to you. By Silvanus, I have written to you. Our faithful brother, as I consider him, is sort of uh, some extra language there. But to get to the heart of what it was that Silas did... Peter says, by Silvanus, I have written to you. And that raises some questions as to exactly what part did Silas play in the communication of this letter that we have been studying to the Christians in northern Asia Minor. Well, there are three answers to that question that are given by various commentators. Some speculate that Silvanus was actually the author that Peter simply asked him to write the epistle. I don't accept that explanation, but I mention it as the first one so that I can get it out of the way. And the reason, many times, why this is proposed is because it is presumed that Peter's lack of education would have made it difficult for him to write the excellent level of Greek that is found in this epistle. And all scholars agree that this is first-class Greek, some of the best that you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. And to assign that level of fluent and literary Greek 
to the rough-and-tumble fisherman Peter, who we know as that uneducated man, at least that's what he's called by his enemies in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, to some people seems to be a bit of a conundrum. How is that possible that a man like this, Peter, as we imagine him to be one who barely achieved a high school education, is able to write such beautiful and fluent Greek? And maybe, as some have proposed, this is the answer. It was actually Silvanus who wrote the epistle, and Peter presumably read it and approved it and sent it on under his name. Well, I rule this option out for more than one reason, but I think it violates Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, and the fact that Peter clearly calls himself the author of this epistle. But furthermore, I think it causes us to realize that the education level of those that that uh, the Pharisees called uneducated and ignorant men was really a lot higher than the average level of education even in America today. What was not a high level of education in that day would have been considered a pretty high level of education in our day. And Peter, if he received the normal education of his day, was well educated and would have spoken at least two languages fluently and would have been taught to read and to write. And he was not an ignorant man and not an uneducated man in that respect. He did not go to the schools of the rabbis. He had not like... Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He did not have that high level of education that we might associate, say, with a Ph.D. in our day. But the standard level of education in that day was more than adequate for the task. And Peter was a good student, and he learned well, and he wrote fluently. And I don't think that he needed any help in order to write the level of Greek that we find in this epistle. So a second explanation for this phrase by Silvanus I have written is to believe that Silvanus was his secretary, his amanuensis, as he is, as they were called in that day. And we do know that it was customary for writers to employ a secretary, an amanuensis, and to dictate the letter to them, and for them to actually produce the letters on the page and to write it down. Uh, Paul did that, as you know. In fact, in Romans 16, uh, 22, we find out who was the amanuensis who penned the epistle to the Romans because Paul allows him to add his own personal greeting. And he does so in Romans 16, 22, when he says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. And when Tertius says, I wrote this epistle, he is no more claiming to be the author of the epistle to Romans than Silvanus is being is claiming to be the author of 1 Peter. But he is saying, I'm the one who took the dictation. I'm the one who wrote it down. The Apostle Paul dictated this epistle to me. And it's certainly highly possible, maybe even probable, that Silvanus served in that capacity for the Apostle Peter. He was his amanuensis. But undoubtedly, he is something else. And that is, he was the courier who carried this epistle to Peter's readers, to the various churches that are named and alluded to in verse 1, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
Silvanus undoubtedly carried this letter to them. And that wording that we read earlier in Acts 15 is what I think makes this unquestionably the case. Because you remember an epistle was being sent there in Acts chapter 15 from the church at Jerusalem to the Gentile churches to settle this dispute which had, which had arisen. And let me read again verses 22 and 23 of Acts 15. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who is also named Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them. You hear that language? They, that is, the leaders of the church at Jerusalem, wrote this letter, which is recorded, and we read that earlier. They wrote this letter by them. And the them there refers to Judas and Silas. They wrote this letter by them. And what is clear from, from the context, abundantly clear, is that Silas, uh, Judas and Silas were the couriers who carried the letter, carried it to Antioch. And as we read earlier, uh, Judas returns from that trip and reports to the apostles in Jerusalem. And Silas stays on in Antioch, and that's why he's there and ready to uh, go on that missionary journey. So, this kind of language, I'm just trying to point out the exact language that is used. This letter, we sent this letter, let me get the exact language again. They wrote this letter by them. They wrote this letter by them. And so when we read that there and realize that refers to the courier, then to hear almost identical language from Peter helps us to understand he too is identifying Silvanus as the courier. Because he says, by Silvanus, I have written to you. Exactly. The language, So we know that this was the phraseology which they used to identify the courier. This was their particular idiom for that task. So there's no question, therefore, in my mind, that Sylvanus was the courier. Could he have as well as been, uh, in addition to the courier, could he have as well been the amanuensis? Yes, he very easily could have been. He could have dictated the letter and carried it to its destination. But what I want us to see here is how does... Peter commend Silvanus. By Silvanus, and now notice these intervening words, very important, our faithful brother, as I consider him. I'm sending this letter to you by Silvanus, this faithful brother, our faithful brother, a faithful brother, some of the translations say. But I think our faithful brother is probably the best translation there. Our faithful brother. That would seem to indicate that Silvanus was not only known to Peter, very well known to Peter, but was also known to the Christians that Peter is writing to. All he has to do to identify the one who's going to bring them the letter is that he is Silvanus, our faithful brother. In other words, you already know him. Let me tell you that I give him my highest commendation. I consider him to be a faithful brother. You can trust him. You can rely on him. And probably Silvanus is going to expand and elaborate on some of the things that Peter has written. After all, he was a preacher. After all, he was a prophet. He did receive divine revelation from God. And therefore, he is highly qualified 
to not only deliver this epistle, but to preach it to them, to explain it to them, to exposit it to them, to expand upon it and tell them more of what Peter had in mind. And since he is definitely going to deliver the epistle and probably is going to explain the epistle, it is important that everyone who receives this ministry from him understands that he receives Peter's highest commendation. You can trust him. You can count on him. You can believe what he tells you. And what again is Peter's highest commendation for Silvanus? Faithful. Faithful brother. There are probably a lot of other things that Peter could have said about Silvanus that would have been true. He could have said our smart brother, (laughs) our fluent brother, our good preacher brother, our talented brother, our knowledgeable brother. And many other things he probably could have said that would have been true about the personality and gifts of this man, Silvanus. But the only thing that he actually says is, he is our faithful brother. He is dependable. He is consistent. And brothers and sisters, that is the highest commendation that anyone can receive from another Christian. That's the highest commendation that anyone can receive from the Lord. Well done, thou good and what? Faithful servant, enter into the joys of thy Lord. What did Paul say when he wanted the Corinthians to receive his ministry from them? He said, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And then he goes on to tell them that he has been faithful to them. That's what's required in stewards, that is, in servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been entrusted with with important assignments by Him. What is the most important, really, the only, the only highly uh, indispensable quality, the only one that really matters, the only one that without which nothing can be accomplished through that particular individual, but with this God will use him to accomplish great things. What is the one requirement for effective service for our Lord Jesus Christ? Faithfulness, dependability, consistency. We can all be that, can't we? We may not all be able to be smart or fluent or whatever, rich. There are a lot of things that many of us will never be. But all of us can, by God's help and grace, be faithful if we will. So much evidently depends upon faithful workers in Christ's kingdom. Not that God is bound by this. God can accomplish His work even without men altogether, as we know. But God has chosen to work through men. That's His choice, His decision, His plan. And God has chosen to work through what kind of men? Faithful men. And, of course, women. Faithful men. Again, not necessarily talented men. Whatever talents we have, God has given them to us. We give them back to Him. We're not responsible for those. We can't take credit for those. But faithfulness, being faithful, we can be faithful if we will be. But so many are not. 
Some who are very talented are of limited value in the kingdom of Christ because they are not very faithful. You can't count on them. Some people you can't even count on to show up when they're supposed to show up. Some people you can't even count on to be present when they're supposed to be present. Some people you can't, you can give them a, an assignment and you have no way of knowing whether they'll do it or not, whether they'll even show up or not. And if, showed, if they show up, if they'll be prepared, if they'll be ready and able to carry out their assignment, they are unfaithful. They are undependable. But so many others of God's people who, in regard to talents, might be judged to be very average are highly valuable for Christ's kingdom. Why? Because they're faithful. You can count on them. They're dependable. They're consistent. They will do to the best of their ability whatever assignment they take, whatever assignment has been given to them by God. You know they're going to do it. You don't have to wonder if they're going to be there. They'll be there. You don't have to wonder if the job's going to get done. It's going to get done. I'm looking at a lot of people like that as I look out over the congregation today. And I'm certainly not going to call any names, but I thank God even as I look out over you for those of you who have assignments that I know are are going to be faithfully carried out at the proper time in the proper way. And sometimes, many times, nobody is even immediately aware that you're doing it at that particular time, and yet your your job just continues to get done. You're faithful. Praise God. Because faithfulness is what is needed. No telling what might be accomplished in the interest of Christ's kingdom, of more of God's people, would be like Sylvanus, would be faithful. By Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him. How about you today? Is that what is said of you? Is that what could be said of you and would likely be said of you by others? That brother, that sister is a faithful brother, a faithful sister. They're dependable. They're consistent. We can count on them. If that can't be said of you, then you need to go home and confess your sin to the Lord and ask him to change you and make you a faithful servant of Christ. Faithful workers the first ingredient for healthier Christianity. But secondly, sound doctrine. The text reads by Sylvanus, our faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Paul, or Peter rather, tells us here what he has done and the nature of the epistle that he is delivering to them. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. And Peter tells us several things about this epistle and its relationship to truth. He calls it a condensed statement, a practical epistle, a certified expression, and a correct understanding of truth. It is a condensed statement. He says, I've written to you briefly. You say, I figured so. I figured Peter had to be a preacher. Only a preacher would write five chapters and 105 verses and then come to the end and say, I've written to you briefly. But of course we realize this epistle is shorter than many of the epistles, really shorter than most of the epistles in our New Testament, longer than a few, but shorter than most. So in that regard, comparatively speaking, I guess it could be called brief. But then when we remember that the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 and verse 22 says, 
I have written to you in a few words. After 13 chapters and one of the longest epistles in the New Testament, he says virtually the same thing. I have written to you in a few words. That is, I've written to you briefly. We realize that this probably doesn't have anything to do with the length, per se, of the epistle. But what Peter means to say is, I have written more briefly than I desired. I wanted to say more than I did. I wanted to add other things, but for whatever reason, I wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit to do that. I wanted to get this epistle concluded and in the mail. I I had other jobs I needed to get onto. Whatever it is, he didn't. And it very well may be, as we've already suggested, that he knew that a trusted preacher and prophet of the Lord Jesus Christ was going to carry this epistle to them, and he himself could preach what was there and expand upon it. So Peter could be brief and count on Silvanus to fill out more of the information that Peter would have written should the circumstances have been more favorable. So he wrote briefly less than he desired to write. But he wrote everything that was needed to serve the divine purpose. Because this is not only the epistle of Peter, but it is the word of the living God, inspired by the Spirit of God. And so we can consider this a condensed statement of truth. Secondly, we realize it is a practical epistle. Peter says, I wrote to you briefly exhorting. Exhorting. That's what is in... Included in the body of the epistle is exhortation, a word that means to urge or advise. It is practical advice based upon sound doctrine. And we've been all the way through the epistle, and if you've been with us on this journey, you know that it is a rather interesting balance between what we would normally call doctrine and what we would call generally admonition or exhortation. Using those words advisedly, Because, of course, doctrine means teaching, and so everything really is doctrine. When Peter says, I want you to do this, and I I caution you about that, and look out for this, that we would consider that exhortation or admonition, that's doctrine too, that's teaching. But Peter does have what we might call theology, and then on that, he makes practical exhortations. And then he gives us another section of theology, And then on that, he adds many practical exhortations. And he says here, I exhorted you. I have written to you briefly, exhorting. I wanted this to be helpful to you. I wanted it to be relevant to you. Now, that causes me to want to say a word or two about this idea of relevancy. That's a big word in our day. We've got to make God's word relevant. Well, I would suggest to you that God's Word is relevant. We don't make it relevant. Remember? 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All Scripture is profitable for all of these things. All Scripture is profitable for doctrine. All Scripture is profitable for reproof. All Scripture is profitable for correction. All Scripture is profitable for instruction and righteousness. It's all the 
infallible word of the living God. And so it is all relevant. It's all practical. It's all profitable. If we don't find it so immediately, we shouldn't be so quick as to say that section of God's word is not relevant. That section of God's word is not profitable. Or, as we sometimes else would say, that preacher's sermon on this portion of Scripture is not profitable. It's not relevant. I I find it boring. Did it ever occur to you that maybe the problem is more within you than within the Word of God? Or even within the preacher? Maybe instead of finding fault with others, you ought to be on your knees before God and say, God, open up my heart so that I'm better able to receive this kind of truth. Portions of of your word like this. There are other sections that speak to me easily and readily, but other parts that I find difficult, and yet your word says that all scripture is profitable, so therefore I must have something within me that's blocking the apparent profitability. Lord, help me. Help me. I think that's a better way to look at it, don't you? The preacher's job is to make God's word clear, whatever portion he's dealing with. It's not really his job to make it practical. It is practical. He starts with the assumption that it is. It is practical. It is relevant. God put it in here for a reason. It's all there for a reason. God has a purpose for this particular section of Scripture, whatever it is. And it's good for the people of God. It will all make God's people furnished unto every good work. We start with that assumption and move on from there. We don't have to go back and try to prove that assumption or to try to somehow do something to the Word of God to bring it up to this standard of practicality and relevancy. The preacher's job isn't to do that. The preacher's job is to make it clear. This is what it says. This is what it means. And it's the hearer's job to ask God to help him apply it. Now, the preacher will try to help the hearer along the way many times, no doubt. I certainly do. And I have nothing, uh, I'm not opposed to that in any way, and it's very obvious that Peter did that in this epistle. But I'm just trying to, to show you how your, how your thinking ought to run, to get, get the right attitude, the right, the right perspective on, on the Word of God. And so it's a condensed statement. It's a practical epistle. Number three, it's a certified expression. Peter says, I testify. I've written to you briefly exhorting and testifying. He testifies in addition to exhorts. In other words, I'm certifying something about this epistle. I'm certifying, as he goes on to say, that this is the true grace of God. I testify to that. Well, that's pretty... Impressive. Peter was, after all, an apostle. Remember what Jesus said to the apostles about the coming Holy Spirit in John fourteen twenty six. But when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Jesus certified that his apostles would be guided into truth. Peter is one of those apostles. Similar statement in John sixteen thirteen. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. That 
statement is written certainly to the apostles. We may give us comfort as believers as well, but the Holy Spirit doesn't guide us in all truth in the same way that he guided the apostles and inspired prophets who wrote the scripture. This is really certifying the inspiration of scripture, that what the apostles and inspired prophets delivered to us is, in fact, the very word of God. It's as much the word of God as the words of Jesus. That's what these promises are saying. And the one to whom that promise applies said is saying, I testify that this is the true grace of God. I testify that what I have written is the truth. It is the word of God. It is inspired scripture. It is certainly a claim to inspiration. But it is also a reminder to God's people to pay attention. When Peter, an inspired apostle, testifies, wise people will listen. Agreed? Which allows me to move on to number four. This is a correct understanding. The true grace of God. This is the true grace of God. That is a true account of God's grace. This is what God's grace looks like. What? This. That is this epistle. This is what God's grace looks like in the lives of the people that he saved. This is the true grace of God. Now, Wayne Grudem, in defining grace with this particular section of God's word in mind, defines it as follows. God's daily bestowal of blessings, strength, help, forgiveness, and fellowship with himself, all of which we need, none of which we deserve. The true grace of God. God's daily bestowal of blessings, strength, help, forgiveness, and fellowship with himself, all of which we need, none of which we deserve. This is the true grace of God. But as we think about what Peter has written in this epistle, this causes us at least briefly to review some things. We can't review five chapters in any detail. But what did Peter tell us about the grace of God? He told us that the grace of God comes to us by divine initiative. Actually, a proper understanding of the word grace would make that clear. But Peter makes it clear that salvation is of the Lord, that salvation is by sovereign grace. That salvation is by divine initiative. He opened his epistle that way. He wanted everybody to understand that right from the get-go. And so he writes to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Who's the, who's the uh, focus of salvation? Is it God or man? It's God. God initiates. 
God gave His Son. God draws sinners to Christ. God keeps by His power those who trust in Christ. It's all of God from beginning to end. This is the true grace of God. This one I described in this epistle, says Peter. Don't let anybody convince you otherwise. This is the true grace of God. This is what God's grace really looks like. We've got such weak and watered down concepts of God's grace in American Christianity today. This is what God's grace really looks like. This is the true grace of God. And we could go on through the epistle. Peter talks a lot in this epistle about the doctrine of divine substitution, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross in the place of sinners. Without that, you don't have the gospel. This is the true grace of God, the one that recognizes that salvation is accomplished by Christ living a righteous life in the place of the sinner who did not live such a life and dying the death deserved by the sinner who has violated the law of God. Divine substitution is the true grace of God. Don't you ever lose that element or you won't have the true grace of God. Peter spoke in this epistle a great deal about future glory for the people of God. The glorious things that await the children of God. He emphasized that again and again because he was talking to Christians who were suffering, as you know. And so he kept holding up before us the glory that awaits those who are trusting Christ when they get to the end of their earthly journeys. You cannot imagine the greatness of the glory that is to follow. Don't ever forget that. Don't lose sight of that. This is the true grace of God, that indescribable, unimaginable future glory that awaits the children of God. But probably the theme that Peter expounded upon more than anything else was the trials of God's people in every chapter. Some chapters several times. Trials, trials, trials. In chapter 1, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Christ. And on it goes. I mean, on throughout the epistle, as you know, if you've been with us. Verse 17 of chapter 3, It is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, and so forth. And Peter says, This is the true grace of God. Suffering. Appointed by God for the people of God. Suffering by divine appointment. This is the true grace of God. God's grace will strengthen you and help you in the midst of sufferings. But God's grace doesn't promise to eliminate your sufferings. God's grace doesn't promise to keep you from suffering. God's grace promises that you will be tested, you will suffer, you will be tried. It's suffering first, and now, glory forever. Suffering in this life, glory to come. This is the true grace of God. Don't let anybody deceive you about that. Don't let anybody talk you out of that. 
How many times I turned to one of the religious channels on television hoping to get something good. And I found there are some good things on there. But oh, it's like picking, almost like trying to find good food in a, in a garbage can. It's, it's there, but wow, you really have to dig through the, <coughs> through the garbage to get to it. And so much of what you hear is this false gospel of health and wealth, this false gospel that says, now God's grace intends that his people not suffer. God doesn't want any of his people sick. God doesn't want any of his people poor. Is that what the Bible says? Is that what Peter said? Did you study Peter with us? Did you read these verses with us? And we come to the end of First Peter, and Peter says, this is the true grace of God. This is the way it really is. Anybody who tells you otherwise is a false teacher. Don't you listen to him for one minute. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. This is the true grace of God. And on it goes. All the exhortations and teachings of this epistle, including sufferings, as an integral part of the Christian calling, are the true grace of God that Peter here certifies. But that brings us third and finally to unwavering commitment. We need a third ingredient for healthier Christianity. We've got to find out what it is that God uses to produce healthy Christianity in this world. It is number one, faithful workers. Number two, sound doctrine. Number three, unwavering commitment. Peter concludes this statement by saying, in which you stand. This is the true grace of God in which you stand. That phrase probably would better be understood as an imperative, a command. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Or stand fast in it. The NIV says stand fast in it. The NASB and the ESV say stand firm in it. It's a command. Stand fast. Stand firm in the true grace of God. When Satan tempts you to doubt, as he will all of his people, you stand firm. When Satan tempts you to doubt God's goodness, God's power, God's wisdom, God's love, you hold on to these truths from the Word of God and you stand firm. Don't you let them go. When pragmatism tempts you to manipulate the Word of God, to shape it, to improve it, to make it more relevant to our modern age, you stand firm to what is true. It's not our responsibility, it's not our right to shape and manipulate the Word of God at all. You find out what is the true Word of God, the true grace of God, and you stand fast in it and don't you waver. Don't you buy into the modern tendency to to manipulate the gospel, to make it all positive with no negatives. That's not the true gospel. Don't you present a gospel that is void of the message of man's extreme and utter sinfulness Man has to understand that if he's ever going to really be able to understand and appreciate the good news of God's grace. Don't cut corners. You're not improving the message. You're not doing a better job of reaching people. You're not doing a better job of evangelizing that way. You're doing a worse job. Find out what is the truth and stand firm in it. Don't you buy into a 
picture of the Christian life that presents it as all joys and no sorrows. And don't you evangelize that way. Don't you tell people, if you'll take just take Jesus, then everything is going to be wonderful. Then all your problems will be over. You won't have any more trials. You won't have any more problems. Just take Jesus. He's going to take all these things away if you'll just believe in him. That is not true. Don't you tell people a lie. You find out the truth and stand for a minute. Don't adopt a style of evangelism that is more interested in making decisions than disciples, that is interested in numbers at any cost, that is more interested in an image of success than in, the, than in being faithful to God. Pragmatism is a great danger. Pragmatism is a great evil. And it permeates Christianity. Find the truth and stand firm. So stand firm when Satan tempts you to doubt. And stand firm when pragmatism tempts you to manipulate. And stand firm when persecution tempts you to deny. The world is opposed to Christ. And the world is opposed to Christians. And we are tempted to try to blend in rather than contrast. We don't have to try to, to contrast All we have to do is just be true to Christ, and we will be a contrast. Stand firm. And stand firm when weariness tempts you to quit. Faithfulness is hard. Perseverance is hard. Christianity is hard. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Of course it's hard, but it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Of course it's hard, but it will be more than worth it. And there will be a great reaping if we don't quit. If we don't lose heart, stand fast. Truth matters. Stand fast. Don't give up. Hold tight on the truth. Hold tight on the Christ. So what does the church need? What does Christianity need in our day? More baptisms, more members. The largest Protestant denomination in America is in a bit of a tailspin right now because in spite of a resurgence of conservative doctrine, for the first time in their history, their attendance and baptism numbers are shrinking. And some voices are saying, oh, we've got to go back to the old ways to make them increase. Well, the old ways has got you into a heap big mess, brothers and sisters. (laughs) That was the pragmatism. That was the the distortion of the gospel. Sure, there are ways to, to add baptisms and add numbers, but if they are not genuine, what have you done except deceive people? Stand fast. In the truth, we don't need more baptisms necessarily or more members necessarily. We don't need better public relations. The the trouble with with the church today is that its, its image suffers. We've got to improve its image. Let's improve it, and the image will take care of itself. Let's improve the church. Never mind the image. Let's improve the church. Let the image take care of itself. What we need is more political power. We've lost a little bit of our our political power. We need to organize a little better and get more political power. That's what we need to to, uh, make inroads in America today. No. What does the church need? It needs, number one, more faithful workers. Number two, more sound doctrine. 
Number three, more unwavering commitment to that which is true. And brothers and sisters, if we have that, we'll have better Christians, we'll have a better church, we'll have a more powerful and effective church in our society. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word, which tells us the truth. And how we thank you for your spirit, which teaches us the truth of your word. And how we decry our own sinfulness and folly and weakness and blindness and inclination many times to go after that which is false instead of that which is true. Forgive us. Help us. Help us to be more like Christ. Help us to be more like Silvanus. Help us to be more like Paul and Peter, faithful, unwavering, committed to sound doctrine. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.